0: Well, good morning, everyone. If you haven't been told thus far, Merry Christmas. My name's Luke. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, I have the distinct pleasure of bringing God's word to you this morning. And, uh, and those who know me well will know that I especially like Christmas. Uh, a couple things. One, I just love Christmas. I always have since I was a kid. And number two, it merges two of my favorite things. Christmas Season, and Frank Sinatra. I get to listen to Frank Sinatra for a whole two months. Um, So uh, that album has been playing since the clock struck midnight on Halloween. Um, But I want to welcome you this morning. Uh, I have the joy of opening uh, the Word. I do not take it for granted. Uh, Some of my favorite preachers in the world preach out of this pulpit week in and week out. Uh, I get to preach about once a year. That's about all I need uh, because I like to hear the rest of the guys Uh, preach. But we're also going to be starting a new sermon series this morning titled Classic Christmas. Uh, Classic Christmas. So if you have your Bibles, I would invite you, if you haven't already, to turn to Luke's Gospel. If you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, that would be on page 855. And uh, perhaps if you're visiting with us this Advent season and you don't have a Bible, allow me to give you your first Christmas gift. Take that home with you and potentially read it through uh, the Christmas season. So as we go to God's Word Allow me to say a prayer asking for God's help. Almighty God, we ask now that as we come to your word, that you would give us eyes of faith to see what human wisdom alone cannot see. Give us ears to hear the words that you have spoken and hearts to marvel at your taking on of human flesh for our salvation. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. C.S. Lewis once said that the central miracle asserted by Christians is the incarnation. We say, Christians say, that God became man. All other miracles either prepare for this, exhibit this, or result from this. We talk often here about the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we must remember that for any of those to be possible, for the life to be possible... For death to be possible, for burial to be possible, for resurrection to be possible, it must begin with a birth. We're going to reflect this morning on the miraculous nature of the Christmas story. And I'm of the opinion that there are two primary dangers to us during this season. The first one is that the, the events of which we will speak about today are simply too miraculous for us To fully fathom and fully understand. G.K. Chesterton meditating on the incarnation. He said that when we look at the incarnation, when we look at the text that we've read this morning, we look at things that cannot be and yet are. We live in an anti-miraculous culture. Sure, they believe things like that happened back then, but we know better now. Miracles don't truly happen. Our culture has a disposition away from the miraculous. And when we hear a text read like the one that was read a moment ago, it can be jolting to us because it takes us into a foreign world, a world of angels and miracles and stars guiding wise men, a miraculous world. Perhaps this morning you're here investigating the Christian faith. And perhaps for you, the miraculous has been a hang-up for you on the, about the Christian faith. I would ask this morning that you would give a hearing to God's word as we look at the miraculous. But the second thing that I think is a a danger to us is that though this story is a miraculous story, it's also a very familiar story. We've heard it year after year after year. Some of you have heard it ever since you were a child. I remember as a young child, we would go visit uh, my family. And before we open the presents, like holding back a pack of ravenous wolves, someone had to read Luke 1. It's a familiar familiar story. It's a story that we're aware of. It's a story that we've heard over and over and over. And I wonder for many of us if the story of the incarnation has become so familiar that it has dulled our senses to the wonder of it. I wonder if the story of the incarnation is so familiar that we no longer are awestruck when we hear words read like that were read a moment ago. It's a miracle that we have become accustomed to for, for hundreds and hundreds of years. Christians have repeated the same refrain, refrain found in the Apostles' Creed, that I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only son, our Lord, who was what? Conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. It's a story that we've heard over and over and over and this morning, I hope to awaken our senses to this story once again. The season of Advent, the season of preparation, is one, is a time to sit in the strangeness of the story and to meditate on it. And I hope to do that for us this morning. It's a story of the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, taking on flesh. And if that is true, it's an, it's an event that can't be taken flippantly. We must sit with it. We must meditate on it. So let's get to the the narrative itself. I want to highlight for us this morning the miracle of the Incarnation. Look in your text down to verse 26 of Luke chapter 1. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. We open our story this morning with an appearance of an angel. Something that we're not accustomed to very often, but apparently, this angel Gabriel had had a busy couple months, a few months past. He had gone to visit Elizabeth, and now he comes to visit Mary, and and they go to a town of Nazareth. Now, this is a a strange occurrence for something like an angel, such a glorious appearance of an angel with such a glorious message, to be coming to a town of Nazareth. This town is a, a town which could be, the inhabitants could be numbered. In the hundreds it would be somewhat like if I came to you and I said guess what something miraculous is going to happen and guess where it's going to happen it's going to happen in my hometown of Saxpahal North Carolina (laughs) some of you are saying where is Saxpahal North Carolina that's my point exactly more cows than people Nazareth is out of the way it's unimportant it's non-strategic in other words it is the last place you would expect a miracle like this to be announced. And yet, the Lord of all creation was announced in a small rural town of little significance. This brings to life Paul's words to the Philippians. You heard it in the prayer. I promise we didn't, uh, we didn't plan this, but Phil prayed this. I want to read uh, from the King James version because I think it highlights a different aspect of this. Paul speaking to the Philippians, Of talking of Christ says, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, though he was all things equal with God, is the way that that Phil read it earlier. But verse seven, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. Took upon him of no uh, reputation, to come to be announced in a town of Nazareth is to be announced in a town of no reputation. And I think as we talked earlier about the familiarity we have, one of our challenges is that we have forgotten just how high and exalted God is. And the the juxtaposition between how high he is and how low he came for us. We should be awestruck by this. It would have been condescension enough. It would have been humility enough had Christ come in the flesh and ruled as an emperor and taken over the entire world. But it is condescension on the highest level level. Humility of the highest order to be announced in a town of Nazareth. Then we continue, and he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. So this angel arrives and, and is speaking to Mary. She's probably just going about her day, and we find out a couple things here. We find out, number one, that Mary is betrothed to a man named Joseph. Now, betrothal in this context would have been uh, similar in some ways to our form of engagement, except the only way that you could end the betrothal was through divorce. So it was a more serious kind of legal uh, connection between these two. But the marriage has not been yet consummated. They haven't been legally married and they have not consummated the marriage. So we find out that Mary is a virgin. Then we also find out that her betrothed is Joseph and Joseph is of the line of David, of the house of David. Now those are the facts, but what are the significance of those facts? Well, we know that Mary is not merely a virgin. She's the virgin of Isaiah 7-1. To any good Jew, the mere mention of this would catch their attention. A a, a virgin of the house of, of David. Stars are starting to align in some way. The Messiah was set to spring forth through the line of David, the virgin shall conceive and, and, and bear a child through the line of David. We see this in Psalm 89, verses 35 and 36, where God speaking to his people said, I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went out from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness. What has, what has the Lord sworn by his holiness? I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. Or Jeremiah 25, 23, 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And what will this righteous branch do? He shall reign as king and deal wisely. He shall execute just justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Born of a virgin, in the house of David. We can see this in Matthew 22, verse 42, Mark 10, verse 47, Acts 2, 30, Romans 1:3, over and over and over. If we've read our Old Testaments, our radar should be going off, that there's something special about this child, something unique about this child. In other words, friends, Mary fits the criteria, perhaps not in the way you or I might think, not in the way you or I might write the story should we were writing it, But Mary fits the criteria to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies. In other words, the shoe fits. Gabriel continues, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. I want you to imagine this scene. Mary is likely a young teenage girl, a young unwed girl to whom an angel appears and says, Greetings, old favored one, the Lord is with you. Greetings, old favored one, the Lord is with you. And we know from knowing the rest of the story that Mary is given the distinct honor of being the earthly mother of our Lord Jesus Christ. There was only one woman given the honor of bearing the incarnate Savior in her womb, only one woman who nursed the Lord Jesus Christ at her breast as a child. Blessed greetings, old favored one, the Lord is with you. It is a sad reality in our day that two errors have been made in regards to Mary. The first is to overemphasize her, to bestow upon her things that the, the scriptures do not bestow upon her. But There's also another sad reality that Mary has been un- underemphasized by others, perhaps even by us. Mary is favored by God. Her blessing is an act of gracious kindness on behalf of God. It is a blessing bestowed upon her by God, but it is not a blessing that she is given because of what is in in and of herself, but it is a blessing that is in direct correlation to the Savior for whom she bears in her womb. She cannot give us what she herself received, namely grace We must not seek from her happiness and righteousness and life, for they were manifested in her from God, not of herself. We ought to celebrate the faithfulness of Mary, but only in correlation with the God with whom she found favor. She will be great because of the child she bears. And the text continues, we will see what is this child like? We see uh, Mary in in a kind of normal reaction. Verse 29, she was greatly troubled at this saying, trying to discern what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. What will this son, what will Jesus be like? Well, first of all, he will be great. Friends, again, it is so strange Something so great would come into the world in so lowly a fashion. Something so great would arrive in a context so lowly and unimpressive. Something so high and lifted up would come into the world in such a low way. It seems strange to us, but not to God. For God is the one who chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Jesus was enunciated in Nazareth. Born in Bethlehem, he died a death on a Roman cross. He went to the lowest of low, burial in a tomb. These things are not markers of strength. These are not what we would commonly associate with greatness. But it is of these that the God of God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords would condescend to take on for our sake. And though he may appear lowly in form... He was and is and forever will be great. Spurgeon said of this, is, is it not proven that he is great? Conquerors are great, and yet he is the greatest of them. Deliverers are great, and yet he is the greatest deliverer. Liberators are great, and he is the greatest liberator. Saviors are great, but he is the greatest savior. He will be great. Not only this, but he will be called son of the most high God. Now we can, we can kind of lose the association with this because when, when I come to you and I talk to you about my son, you don't equate my son with me necessarily. But in this culture, to say that someone was the son of someone else was to equate them, to, to, to make them equal with one another. So when Gabriel says he will be called son of the most high, what, is he, what he is saying is that He is claiming the same thing in this statement in seed form that Christ would say throughout his life and that the apostles would say throughout their lives that Christ is the image of the invisible God, the exact imprint of God's nature. This is one of the earliest associations of Christ being equal with God. When Jesus says, I and the father are one, this is that message in seed form. He is son of the most high. That's who he is. But what will he have? The Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. Jesus is the king who will sit on the promised throne of David. Perhaps you, uh, you caught the, the song that we sang. Born thy people to deliver. Born a child and yet a king. Born to reign in us forever. Now thy gracious kingdom bring. Jesus is the king. He is the king of 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 17. If you're familiar with this text, this is uh, God's covenant with David. Nathan comes to David, and God gives Nathan this, this word to say to David. He says uh, in, in, verse, in verse 12, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up an offspring after you who shall come from your body, And I will establish his kingdom. Are you making the associations yet? He shall build a house for my name and I will establish his throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him what? I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. My steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from you before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me your throne shall be established forever this is the king that nathan spoke of this is the king that was promised the king who will establish his throne forever his kingdom shall have no end you see in that passage in second samuel essentially all that was enunciated about christ by the by the angel gabriel you see it promised in the old testament Annunciated by Gabriel, and it will be fulfilled throughout the rest of the New Testament. His kingdom shall have no end. We can bookend this if, if this is the annunciation. If, we'll, if Christ will fulfill these things through the, the coming texts in the Gospels, then we can bookend it on the back end with the text in Revelation 11 verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, what are they saying? The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Progressively, we see it promised in the Old Testament that a kingdom will come. We see Gabriel saying, no, no, this is the king whose kingdom will reign forever and ever. We see Jesus saying, my kingdom is not of this world. And we see in Revelation, there's a coming day where the kingdom will be fully established and Christ will fully reign over his people and his kingdom will have no end. The kingdoms of of all earthly kingdoms will one day fade away. But the kingdom of this king, the kingdom of this king who has come will endure forever. This is the message that, uh, that Gabriel gave to Mary. So now, let, let's take a look at Mary and take a look at, at her, her response. Look back up to the text. Verse 29, uh, I, one of the things I, I love about the Bible is that uh, sometimes we can get into our head that, that though it is miraculous and, and all the things we've talked about, that there are these, these, these things that go well behind, beyond our comprehension, Sometimes the scriptures speak to us in such a way that we can relate to it. Verse 29 is one of those. But she was greatly troubled (laughs) at this saying. Mary going about her business, going about her her, her normal day, you would assume. Nothing tells us that it was any unique day. Angel comes to her and and she is troubled. She's trying to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And And then look down to verse 34. And Mary said to the angel... How will this be since I am a virgin? One pastor said, you can almost imagine Mary getting this message. Uh, I don't know if you've, you know, you've had this kind this situation happen to you where someone comes to you and tells you something, and then for the next three to five minutes, your brain is just kind of turning and spinning on all the things that are going to happen because of that. That's almost what you see from, from Mary here. She's, she's trying to discern what type of greeting is this. She's asking questions. What what how will this be? I, I'm a virgin. Also, one pastor said, you can imagine there's probably the thought going to, into her mind that she's going to have to go home. If this is really true, and, and she's going to have a child, and she's a virgin, she's going to have to go home and kind of knock on the door of Joseph's workshop and say, uh, honey, when you're finished with that table, I got something I need to talk to you about. It's going to be a little bit of an awkward conversation. And what we see in, in Mary is that, that the response to this, this message Is one of consideration. How will this be since I am a virgin? It's a logical question. Mary has not left her mind behind in this interaction. She's just been told that you will bear a son, even though you haven't had relations uh, with a man. For, For Mary, a pregnant virgin, like it would be for us, is inconceivable. Let us not grow so accustomed to this story, brothers and sisters, that we don't pause to reflect on the impossibility of what Mary has just been told. this, This claim would be tantamount to the claim of breaking the laws of physics. It's an impossibility bordering on absurdity. And like any logical person, Mary asks, how can it be? In other words, she says, Gabriel, I hear what you're saying, but how? Now, some of you might be considering the claims of Christ or the claims of faith. I would imagine in a room this size, this season, there are perhaps seekers or, or skeptics who are coming in here. Who, when you hear about things like the incarnation, when you hear about death and resurrection, when you hear about the miraculous, your, your kind of knee jerk response is, eh, How can this be? And if that's your response this morning as you hear these things, no, you're in good company. Our sister Mary had the same response how can this be what we know is this that that the conception of Jesus would come through the agency of no man but of the agency of God this is why Jesus is the seed of the woman in Genesis 3:15 come to crush the head of the serpent look down again to the text Mary says how will this be since I'm a virgin thankfully the angel gave her an answer a little bit of explanation The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. What we know is that the Holy Spirit would so surround, so encompass Mary as to cause her to conceive. We may not be able to fully comprehend it, but it does call to mind the echoes that we've heard throughout the Scriptures Perhaps the cloud that that enveloped the tabernacle to protect his people. The cloud which enveloped Jesus as he is transfigured. And even the Holy Spirit coming to dwell within us. These things, we don't know exactly how they work themselves out. But we know it is an act of the Holy Spirit. It's a mystery. It's a miracle. It is God breaking into the world. And it is at this point, friends, that we must do what has always been asked of Christians. We must marvel at the miracles of Christ. Our religion is a, is a religion of miracles. Remove the miraculous and you no longer have an authentic Christian faith. You may not have a Christianity devoid of the miraculous conception of Jesus. And like most miracles, we, we need not master them. We must marvel at them. Gabriel gives her another, another, another example. You need only look to your uh, relative Elizabeth. You kind of feel bad for Elizabeth because what, what's implied here is that she's known as the old barren one. She's old and she doesn't have a child. And Gabriel says, if you go to her now, you'll see that she's, she's six months pregnant. She's showing at this point another miracle. You need another miracle? There's your other, there's your other miracle. God is a God of the miraculous. Mary, and, and Elizabeth, your relative, is proof positive of that point. And then we see the, the text kind of come to a, a finale of the message in verse 37. For nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing will be impossible with God. What, essentially what Gabriel says here is, Mary, you're correct. You are correct. With man, virgins don't become pregnant. With man, barren old women do not bear children, but with God, nothing is impossible. There are some translations that translate this phrase, uh, nothing will be impossible. They, They translate it like this. They say, no word of God shall be without power. No word of God shall be without power. In other words, none of God's promises will fail. Whatever he says will come to be. The serpent's head will be crushed and if it takes breaking through the laws of scientific reason to do that, nothing will be impossible with God. There is nothing beyond his capability. There's a song we sing here often that says, his history can prove what? There is nothing he can't do. He's faithful and true. Friends, consider this for a moment. If we believe in a God who created all that there is, ex nihilo, out of nothing. He needed no materials. He simply spoke and it was. If we believe in a God like that, then why should we not believe that he can do something that transcends human experience in bringing his son into the world through the virgin birth? Consider these things this morning as our sister Mary did. But that's not where Mary stops. She considers, and then secondly, her response is a response of submission and acceptance. Look to verse 38. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Mary's response is one of humility. It's a response of submission. It takes the posture of a subject, not a master. Now we have no evidence that Mary had any other information other than what is given to her here by the angel Gabriel. It's not a lot to go on. Friends, I invite you to learn from our sister, Mary. When we listen to God, we ought to do so with humility. We pray here often, and I prayed earlier, that God would give us ears to hear what he says and hearts to submit to what he says. Mary doesn't have all the evidence. She doesn't have a step-by-step plan of how everything is going to work out. She doesn't know exactly what all the ramifications of this message to her will be. But what she does have is a promise of God mediated through the messenger Gabriel, and it's a message of God's transcendence over the seeming impossibility of what has been told to her. We would do well to remember that God doesn't often give us the next four, five, 10, 20 steps. He often gives us a promise, and we are to submit and obey. We read a moment ago in, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where Nathan declares God, David, to, God, to David God's plan for that offspring that will come after him. What I didn't reference in that text like this text, there is a response from David after that in verse 27 of 2 Samuel 7, hear the echoes of, of a similar response to what we hear from, from Mary. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel have made this revelation to who? to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God. And what? And your words are true. No word of the Lord shall be without power. And you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant So that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. David, like Mary, hears this promise from God and says, I'm your servant, be it done according to your word. And we see Gabriel giving a message to Mary that is the continuation of this promise. Brothers, sisters, friends, visitors with us this morning. We are all posed with a question of what we will do when we hear of the miraculous nature of God working in the world. We live in a world that wants tangible answers for everything. We want to know, we want to understand, we want every detail. If you can't prove it to me, I'm not going to believe it, as what we often say. But friends, there are some questions whose answers lie not in the realm of sight or touch, but in the realm of faith. And these promises from God are of that sort. If we come to God wanting to know everything before we believe, we'll never believe. But if we come to God and believe, he will give us that which we need to know. We see that in David and we see that With Mary, be it done to me according to your word. What a beautiful response. I'm not sure, I don't I'm not versed enough in the original language to know if it's as poetic in the original language as it is, as it seems to be here. But it's a phrase that we would do well to commit to heart in our own lives. Behold, I am a servant of the Lord, be it done to me according to your word. We hear echoes of this even later on when when Jesus says in in the garden. If there's any way, let this cup pass from me, that not my will but yours be done. Jesus has given us an even true and greater model of of humility and of following what God would have. Let us not count, let's not forget to count the cost. Think about it. For Mary, her earthly prospects, if this is true, her earthly prospects are not great. She'll likely lose her betrothed, as far as she knows. She doesn't know that an angel is going to come And give the message to Joseph as well. She may lose her betrothed. She may lose her reputation. She may be committed to a life of destitution and poverty. She may be rejected by all those of her people. She'd carry a stigma with her. Think of the scarlet letter. Think of the fear. Think of the emotions that Mary must feel in this moment. And yet she says, I am a servant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And we would do well to remember that the birth of Christ, that Christ's coming, inaugurated in the flesh a kingdom that he would take to the cross and he would say, it is finished on the cross. The birth of Christ is is an event in, in history. It is a gospel message, that the same gospel message that was given to Mary, that there is a God who came, took on flesh, lived the life that, that we could not live, and died the death in our place that, that we deserved, that we might be made right with God, that we need only turn from our sins to put our trust in this promised king whose kingdom will know no end and we can have right relationship with God. It's a miraculous thing. I think one of the reasons we may have grown dull to the miraculous, the miraculous may have become overly familiar to us because we forget that it is miraculous that any of us have come to know Christ by faith. It's miraculous that any of us have seen and tasted and seen of this message. As I look out this morning, I know many of you I've had conversations with, and you've told me something about yourself. You have said, I was once dead and now alive. And in my book, dead people coming to life is miraculous. And it it can be so because of the king who, who came for us, who took on human flesh for us, that we might be made right with God. So I would encourage you this Christmas season, if you're not a Christian here, perhaps you've started coming through the holiday season, welcome, this is a safe place for you to evaluate the claims of Christ. If you're considering, if you're considering this morning, Know that what is required of you is not to, to work your way into something, not to earn anything, but to submit and accept that Christ has done it all on your behalf. And if you're a Christian this morning, let us not grow dull in our wonder of what Christ has done in his incarnation. Let it be to us according to his word. We are simply his servants. Let's pray. Our Father.